Hey common scientists, we're coming to you this week with a little extra flair, a little extra sparkle from my end, I guess, uh, on the topic of Disney. So we're going to get into a little bit of the science and social science of some of the themes that we see in Disney. We're going to maybe talk a little bit about the powerhouse of Disney. Uh, they own like everything, um, or maybe it's the company. Anyways, we'll get into it, common scientists. So just a little bit of background and prefacing. We are common scientists on the common science cast keyword, common. If you've heard this before, fast forward a minute, I'll be done soon. But that just means that we're common scientists. We come to the table, we do some research, we talk about something that we're excited about, and we bring as much of the scientific method and scientific research to the table as we can in 60-ish minutes. So this week we're going to do that with Disney. So I want to kick it to Dre. And I'm wondering if there is either a favorite Disney movie, favorite Disney character that you resonate with, or movie or Disney character you despise. So giving you some options there. (laughs) I appreciate that. Definitely my favorite Disney movie ever is Mulan. I watched it hundreds of times as a kid. The original, right? The original, the OG, (laughs) the OG animated, uh, not the live action at all. Oh, that is an abomination, as we all we all agree. <laughs> yeah. We all agree, yes. So like, the bad. fact that they made it without Mushu. So bad. I thought it was a joke. I was Garbage. like, okay, they're going to leave it out of the trailer because once they reveal Mushu. Yeah. The, he's going to be just Yes, larger, larger than, than life, life right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be so amazing. And they're going to bring back Eddie Murphy, and it's going to be, like, incredible. Yeah. And then I watched it, and I even I bought it, like, the $30 one or whatever it was, that yeah. like, when it first drops. And uh, we had, like, this whole night plan where we got, yeah, yeah, whatever. We had this whole night plan, this whole big day. And, oh, my gosh. Yeah, but Tragedy. Mulan, definitely. I just think so many components of it. It's such a well-designed story that... Eddie Murphy nailed it. All the voice actors were amazing. The production was great. It there are some things that didn't age well, of course, um, but still the songs were very. They feel good. They hit you hard. You can sing along with them to catch you. Mm-hmm. All that good stuff. Um, a lot about that film was just really, really incredible to me. And I, I mean, this is kind of low hanging fruit, I guess, but I never thought about it when I was a kid. That like, oh, like my favorite movie ever. Like, there's a female protagonist. But that definitely shaped me just a tiny bit, I think, than some other people that might be like, oh, like that's like a girl's movie or like this or that or blah, blah, blah. Where somehow like the difference between like a Rapunzel or a Sleeping mm-hmm. Beauty or Snow White then versus like a Mulan who's like an action hero mm-hmm. um, woman and all that. I thought that was pretty cool and kind of changed how I saw cinema a little bit as a, as a kid. Yeah, I was a big fan of Mulan. I think Mulan was in the same camp around the time that I was exposed to Mulan and excited about Mulan. I had to watch Annie Oakley for a music <laughs> uh, a music course, and I don't know if Annie Oakley is even Disney, but needless to say... Annie Oakley? Yeah, so for... it's about this sharpshooter woman who was like the best sharpshooter in the West and could outshoot any man like 10 to 1. And um, there's this song that comes out of the out of the movie that's like anything you can do, I can do better. And that's probably what's most well known. Um, And then it's like 
no, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. That's like the, mm-hmm. the thing. Yeah. And um, I think Mulan and that like Western thing, <laughs> Western movie were two, two very, very different storylines, but two areas where I was like, oh, yes, I can be a powerful woman in a man's world. Because I think in a lot of ways that felt like the case, especially growing up in rural Minnesota. So, yeah, I also really enjoy Mulan. Yeah, I also really enjoy (laughs) (laughs) Mulan. Uh, That was one of my favorites growing up. Uh, As far as other favorites go, I was a big fan of Finding Nemo. Uh, I've always been into marine bio, uh, and so mm. learning some of the different fishies growing up. Uh, yeah, and obviously the the story arc just, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's fun. It's a classic for a reason. Um, yeah, so that was, that was definitely one of my, one of my favorite Disney movies growing up. Some other highlights. Holes, Lilo and Stitch. Holes, oh. Holes is Disney. Mm-hmm. Okay. Holes, wow. is, Holes is fantastic. Yeah, Zero, yeah. Shia LaBeouf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What other ones? Name a couple others. Mm, Brother Bear. That was a good Ooh, one. Oh, that's kind of, that slept on. I love Brother Bear. Mm-hmm. Oh, Coda, so cute. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The Pacifier. With Vin Diesel, mm-hmm. ick. I never. You like that movie? That. I thought it was so good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I I hated that era of like putting like buff men into these weird roles, like Triple H, the wrestler. <laughs> One time he was like a bus driver or something. He had like it was like the exact same movie as Pacifier, I swear, but it was just him as like a bus driver or something with a kid. And I was like, this this is so strange, like that they keep doing this. And I feel like they've done it with John Cena. Yeah. And The Rock, and I'm just like. Well, what is this? What is this trend? I, just, I did not care for it. I, only thing, only trend that these Disney films or these type of films have done that like least are all these live action remakes. Mm. Now that is truly reprehensible. So I okay. won't go. <laughs> Let me just say though, as someone who had a father who was deployed in the military and like wasn't always around and mm. maybe wasn't always the best like at interacting especially after he came home from his last deployment yeah i really appreciated seeing these disney movies or like seeing that period of time where yeah like they inserted some buff awkward person in this father-like role who maybe wasn't a father because like it number one made me believe that i could find father figures in men who weren't my dad number two made me understand like also the person the man who isn't so good at relating to kids but like means well because I think you get to know through the storyline like oh he's really trying but he doesn't like get it so I I think maybe that's why I as a young young girl resonated a lot and just thought it also was hilarious but yeah I just had to defend that a little bit yeah no I love it awesome that's fascinating uh yeah I I think so that just what you just brought up there, I think harkens to how much we can learn and be shaped from these stories that are brought to life on, on 
through the medium of film in the in the case of Disney. Uh, I, I'm curious if one of you two want to talk some about stories, archetypes, why we why they resonate so deeply with us. <laughs> Sounds like you want to talk about it, my guy. <laughs> you just... I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I, I know that you guys hold that as a fascination, and you guys definitely know much more about it than I. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, sure, we can, we can get into that a little, little bit. Uh, <laughs> so. Within social sciences primarily, we sometimes talk about the story in line of with of and with archetypes. And archetypes really are basically shortcuts that people can use um, to determine characters and stories and where they might lie in terms of like personality and character. So it's like an easy, easy to latch on to label, basically, of characters um, and even of characters and people in your own life. So, for example, um, the hero is an archetype, right? Someone who is generally coming in to save the day. A lot of the time, heroes are depicted as men, except for in Mulan, which is one of my faves for that reason. Um, but like the savior, right? That that might be the hero archetype, and you can identify them in your life. You can identify them in almost every Disney uh, movie. Another example is like the old wise man. Another another figure you might be able to identify in your life. You can also identify in a lot of movies. So. There are these like easy to latch onto character types that help us shortcut, help our brains have a shortcut that's easy to digest and say like, oh, yep, that's the that's the old man who's wise. Oh, yep, that's the the wise fairy godmother or whatever it is. So that's kind of like a very uh, high level overview of archetypes. And I think archetypes were researched by a few different people, but I think Carl Jung gets the most, or Jung gets the most, uh, credit for, for archetypes. And we talk a lot about them still today in being themes in, in literature and other stories outside of Disney, but big for our brains to kind of like latch on to and it might be part of the reason that even adults can resonate a lot with these Disney storylines as well as your kids because the kids might latch on to the hero whereas the adult might latch on to the I don't know problem child whatever whatever that's depicted in the story so really fascinating really fascinating science behind that but also really fascinating to think about those shortcuts in our brains yeah, one add on to add on like to a specific type of archetype. One really common archetype that we see a lot in the Western world is uh, sort of like a Christ archetype or like a savior archetype, where you either you have like some sort of gentle savior that arises or something to that light or a sort of sacrificial lamb. Those are really common in our society, whether that be because they're directly from the Bible, whether that be because these are just ancient ancient archetypes that have kind of always existed in storytelling, as long as we can remember throughout human history. But there are a lot of these sort of ideas and concepts that if you deconstruct stories, you will find a lot of these in pretty much every single story. And going into Carl Jung, so he has an idea about archetypes and fairy tales and 
I'm sure, I don't know when he died, but I'm sure Disney was pretty young when he was, so I don't know if he talked specifically about Disney or not, but about these fairy tales and cartoons and stuff like that, where they help children and young minds navigate the complexities of the world and they give them something kind of solid to work with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think to the credit of that, it, some a lot of times they're black and white a lot of times they're very clear cut so then somebody can help form like a moral code help form like a sense of goodness a symbol versus scar something like that a, a marlin finding you know this do- this really dedicated father crossing the sea going against all odds all dangers to save his son and we can see that as a good and we can aspire to be that and then obviously on the flip side it's well, it's a little bit too black and white, right? It's just like, right. and I think as adults, when we watch Lion King, like at least me, I don't really see Scar as like 100% evil. I can conceive of like the things that revolve around the the kind of hierarchy of a lion and the hierarchy of our own society and why somebody like Scar might come about. I can see those complexities. But as a kid, a lot of these things are really just like it's good versus evil where we know that humans are kind of good and bad, right? There's a lot more gray area and there's a lot more stuff to navigate, but at least these archetypes help build the ground level for kids. At least that's Jung's hypothesis. Oh, for sure. And I think to another word that's thrown around in a similar vein of archetypes is this word schema. And like, whereas the archetype focuses on the character or person, the schema focuses more on the storyline, where if you know you're going to a birthday party, you automatically can think of um, balloons, and you can think of cake, you might think of candles, you might think of kids, because kids maybe have more like birthday parties than adults. And these those shortcuts, when I say birthday party, right, something was in your mind. And I think both of those parallel really well is the same as when I say hero, right? Something pops into your mind. I can't snap with my left hand. Uh, But just these, yeah, these shortcuts that are used and studied um, both in like adolescents and in adults. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It makes me wonder. I have not done enough research so maybe common scientists or you guys can enlighten me uh it it makes me wonder it seems like these archetypes are so and schemas are so deeply human that they are quite likely quite neurologically and physiologically based um if you're like if you have kind of this materialist perspective where uh like the neurons firing or not uh, can lead to these the emergence of these complex phenomena, one of which being archetypes. I don't know if you guys looked into the neuroscience at all, but just uh, yeah, just a, a, a hypothesis to throw out to our listeners in case they're curious about uh, looking into looking into it more. Yeah, I, I don't have any science to back it up, but I, I would definitely, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, I would definitely venture to say, yeah, for sure. Like it is something that's deeply ingrained with us. Like 
humans, no matter whether they're exposed to these things or not, they're going to think of them in some capacity. It's not the stories that created the archetypes. It's the archetypes that help create the story. The us recognizing common patterns, and that's essentially what an archetype is. We're, as humans, we really like predictability. We really like patterns, and we're really good at recognizing patterns. And this is a pattern, for better and for worse, that we have seen throughout thousands, hundreds, thousands of years. And we've we've infused it into our myths and our religions and mm -hmm. eventually now into our entertainment or not even eventually now but and then into our entertainment and our fireside chats and all that good stuff yeah and even to take it one step further it's integrated also into our shame pathways so i'm a big fan of brené brown she's probably i know she's come up before in some casts but she talks a lot about the research behind shame and um the reward centers in our brain that reward shortcuts right so it's easy to say like oh that person was crappy this morning i am like upset with them it's a lot harder to say like oh we live in a gray world maybe that person was having a bad day maybe i also overreacted right like one of these situations is rewarded by the brain because it's easy the other of these situations is not rewarded by the brain because it's more complex. There's a lot more gray. However, it's also the more emotionally resilient uh, and empathetic response also often. So there's a tension too in not only what the brain rewards, but what actually might be uh, a more like superior, for lack of a better word, and like empathetic human response. So deeply seated and there's got to be science then behind that from both the perspective and also listening to Brené Brown's book. Um, she talks about a lot of that science but then also in undergrad I studied um, scientific communication so I went to a unique undergraduate institution where they only have health sciences and health professions and so in comparison to another campus that might do like a public speaking course our public speaking course was only focused on communication of scientific information. And so we actually talked about some of the like science and neuroscience behind archetypes, or not archetypes, but schemas. And I don't remember like the book, or maybe we can do a little research after, but you'll have to also check it out, Common Scientist. So for sure, uh, I didn't think about it much though in prep for this cast. Yeah, totally. Uh... Yeah, I'm learning here from from both of you guys. Uh, I think one thread of what you just said, Lauren, uh, that also reminded me of the, the complexity of something like Disney and, and archetypes and, and analyzing stories in uh, a scientific way is that time is incredibly important, like temporal context. So when you said... Like the empathetic response might be superior. One uh, thought I had was like it might be superior today when we're in this hyper-connected, hyper-collaborative uh, society. Uh, whereas in hunter-gatherer days where it was like kill or be killed, eat or be eaten, uh, kind of more scenario. Obviously, there was still collaboration, but it was much more... Uh, tight-knit tribal collaboration like I think that like maybe the the transition over time 
might be more towards that that sorts of sorts of values but anyways um yeah just i'm i'm learning and and philosophizing to uh uh based on what you guys are just are spitting out yeah what do you guys think makes and has made like disney such an icon and household name mm. One thing for sure is standing on the shoulders of giants. A lot of Disney movies are just remakes of old folklore and fairy tales that have existed for a long, long time. I know the Brothers Grimm is like he took a lot of stuff from them. Uh, so that's one thing. And I think in harkening back to our billionaires episode, we did talk about how it helps to have a a high floor, right? To start closer to the finish line, that helps. Discipline helps. Ambition and obsession help. Um, and then just like you have to have some level of creativity or it helps to have some level of creativity and be there at the right time. So one thing that Disney did do is, um, and maybe it wasn't necessarily him specifically, but the company, they did tweak and change and modify and slowly and slowly and slowly make everything way more cute, right? If you look at the first, the beginning of Mickey Mouse and his first iterations it was he's kind of like an ugly little rat and he was even more mischievous too back then too he was definitely more of a i have to look i have to look at, up some of those pictures yeah a little bit more mischievous yeah i am i think that's the kind of and even if you don't think he's hideous like he's a little bit more ratty looking it's not those like cute big eyes like super round everything he didn't look as much like that so i know disney went through a lot and he was like ready to go through hell to get his company and i know he felt really spurned from um the way that the industry treated him at first walter walt disney yes um is it walter or walt i, I just I'm, I, I'm maybe known, known as walt disney yeah yeah i don't know if it was originally walter <laughs> yeah. i don't know yeah and then, and then like... him or his mother decided to shorten yeah. it yeah, yeah yeah walter disney does not have the same ring <laughs> but um but yeah so i I don't know. I guess like those are some of the things. I, I guess I don't know specifically, but those are some things that I see. Um, taking some of those fairy tales and seeing, perhaps it was part of coming out of the world war wars, and maybe he it was a right time where this new generation wanted a lighter spin on things, didn't want these really grim stories anymore, and these really kind of whatever these themes. Maybe they wanted yeah. something lighter. Maybe it was just the perfect time. Yeah, I think timing's super important. One other, to harken back to our anime cast, when we talked about uh, collaborative creativity for our listeners in, in anime as a Japanese form of animation. And uh, in that context, we talked about how the artists were quite in communication with their fan base and we're learning from with their fans as far as what sorts of content to produce how to produce it better uh another like thought i had was with disney i'm sure i mean i would be incredibly fascinated to know how they manage their uh internal collaboration because with such a i mean in enterprise the the teams have got to i mean i don't know how they do it but there's got to be some processes in place that help enable uh fantastic internal internal uh Brilliant. creativity and collaboration and then production at the end of the day um yeah because I, I went to uh 
so Pixar is also owned by Disney. And I went to the, the Science Museum of Minnesota, had an exhibit. And there's hundreds of people doing the, creating these visions. And like one person is tasked with creating the lighting of this one, like two second scene. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's impressive how many people are involved. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, rarely when I go to the movie theater, do I sit to watch all of the credits at the end, Mm -hmm. but there are just like smunched into like underneath one section of something like a hundred names. Yeah. It's crazy. Like it's it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I would be fascinated to see what that collaboration looks like at the level of, of Disney and to, to understand better, like how does that collaboration work? Because there is this umbrella company Right. That is Universal Studios, right? Disney is the parent. Oh, Disney company. is. Disney owns like Fox and all the other. All these other, I mean, just. Yeah. Common sign is you have to look it up so that you can see. I mean, I'm pretty the images, sure. Am but I right, Trey? <coughs> no, I, I don't. I think you're right. Okay. There's yeah, like ESPN and all that. They're all on my Disney. Yeah. Blow. ABC. Blow it. Oh, man. Yeah. I appreciate hearkening back too. We didn't have a lot of hearkening back. <laughs> I love when one of us uses a word and then also we can keep using it. I hear it all the time in our cast. Somebody uses one word else and I'm saying it and I'm like, dang it, ain't it. When do I, when do I ever use that word? <laughs> yeah, we need to find it. So if our listeners know a synonym for hearken back to, uh, comment it in the, in the yeah because that'll really help us right now while we're recording it uh anyways it'll help us next time but. yeah um anyways yeah i appreciated you bringing up the anime cast though and the power i think the power of animation too so the question that i posed to you guys being why do you think disney got as far as it did and why is it a household name today I do just think that animation is really powerful. Uh, and oh, yeah. I don't know that Disney is the most powerful animator now that I have been um, made aware of the anime culture and how big of an industry that is. I do think that people desire to see these archetypes. They want to see the story they want to have the ability to find some black and white and an escape, um, a bit of an escape of reality too. And I think that that is this very powerful niche niche that Disney plays. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, animation, You, I think you touched on some of the ideas of just how uh, when you strip away the kind of some of the distracting elements of like a, a an actual human, uh, there can be more emphasis on the story and, and the ideas behind it. And that resonated to me powerfully. And I also see it, another place I do see it is so Khan Academy is so successful uh, as an educational organization and Salman Khan the founder, uh, he attributes it to how originally uh, his lectures on math that he was giving to, he was just recording and putting on on YouTube and and giving to his uh, 
like local community, they were uh, a blackboard with without his face anywhere present on the screen and him speaking over like the writing of, of the different formulas and things like that. So there was just no distraction there. And it was all the, all of the focus was on is on the math and that's carried through to, I mean, Khan Academy today. And I'm just seeing a lot of parallels there for sure. I totally agree that animation is just a really special form of storytelling, a really special form of human entertainment, expression, engagement, even Carl Jung, when he would do, um, when he would like be in therapy sessions with children specifically, he would use the archetype of certain fairy tales to help walk through kid, walk kids through any sort of trauma or circumstance that they were going through. Because on one hand, fairy tales and animation stuff like that, it's like a kind of like a safe space, right? It's like it's it's a reflection of reality, but it isn't a reality. And we know this. So it is like a safe place to express emotions, to work through things, to challenge or work through archetypes, specifically the negative ones. Um, and to, I think kind of to your point where we do, it does help to make things black and white at times in order to help us navigate the world. Cause if we constantly see everything is gray, it can be really difficult to know how to act, especially as a young developing mind. So whether somebody who's doing a bad thing does have an entire story, right? They are their own protagonist. Of course, it helps a child or a young version of your mind to see something and be like, okay, this is a complex scenario. I don't know how to deal with this. Like this is my, mother and she did this bad thing but my mother is supposed to be perfect and good and to have that archetype or whatever it might be and, and separate that and say okay this is what actually what this is like your mother is this archetype she does have this bad thing in her and help the kid work through that um and even to a professor on top of that professor tenzak uh, published a study in published some research in the journal of death and dying and in his research, he saw that main characters in kids shows and cartoons die two, twice as much as an adult or any other sort of um, shows. And this is, I don't know if it's intentional, but the product of this is helping kids to deal with loss in a safe way, right? They're not dealing with it with their real life person, but it's like they're dealing with a character and with feelings and with music that makes them feel something. And they can work through that and understand that things aren't forever. And that opens a window for parents to talk about it. And it's kind of analogous to like owning a pet, which I'm not sure people do that anymore. Like talk about that anymore, like having, getting a pet to help, help teach kids about responsibility and dying and loss and all that. But I know that is kind of a common theme or kind of th thing that we grew up on hearing. So yeah, animation is special. And I mean, I know it's helped me, it's helped for me to who I am. There's a lot of lessons I've learned and a lot of people, cartoon characters that I aspired to be growing up. Yeah, I think outside of the childhood influences, which I totally agree with um, and resonate with in a lot of ways, for adults also who are working to reconcile like inner conflict and are working to reconcile all this gray space, in order for like a behavior to ultimately change when presented with new information, I think that you have to have arrived 
like pretty clearly out of the gray space. For example, in a past cast, we talked through our experiences of veganism. And uh, I don't identify as a vegan. However, I've been exploring some of my feelings around the morality of eating and consuming animal products and using animal products. And right now I'm in a pretty gray space. Like I feel like pretty conflicted. I'm not quite sure. And using like, I mean, stories, animation, and this example maybe is a little bit challenging, but like then maybe you need to see Bambi to really clearly say like, yep, this is wrong. I've arrived in a black or a white space and now I can shift my behavior. So I think too, it can absolutely support behavior change for adults because Mm -hmm. eventually you have to come out of the gray in order to decide how to act and live yeah i think the coming out of a out of the gray yeah i mean you're you couldn't have said it better coming out of the gray to decide how to act and live uh is incredibly important because there is all this uncertainty and one needs to navigate it and our our brain comes fortunately hardwired or so we think in with these archetypes and and the structure of a story and uh one strategy i've found as far as kind of coming to uh like a an understanding of the world that i can then put into action uh is through journaling so getting my thoughts out on paper uh i don't know what it is or what makes it might make it uh therapeutic to me but i'm i'm curious how I mean, Lauren, since you brought it up, uh, like the, the coming out of the gray, how have you come out of it in the, in the past? How have I come out of the gray in the past? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think conversation for me has been Mm. hugely important. And then plugging into communities that I identify with. So when I was living in Rochester, Minnesota, I was a a member of a super progressive, maybe progressive's not the right word because that's now like a politicized word, but a forward-thinking community, forward-thinking Christian community who was made up of mostly scientists and doctors and nurses. And it was... Of, I mean, it was a phenomenal uh, Christian community and nothing like I'd ever experienced before. The church is called Autumn Ridge, if you want to check it out and learn more about their foundation and uh, what's taught there. But I think, too, um, for me, one of the areas that I felt a lot of gray was my Christian, super conservative uh, community that I grew up in, and then coming to a a less conservative community, but mainly just a really science-driven community. Mm-hmm. And for some reason that maybe we'll talk about on a future cast, there is just this tension between science and um, religion, and it just felt felt really gray. But by engaging with a community that was science-driven and God-minded, 
I was able to come out of the gray a lot in conversation with other Christians who were also scientists and in fellowship with them and um, through also, of course, like hearing sermons from pastors and then going home and like studying it on my own and asking more questions. So I think, I guess that's one example of, of coming out of the gray. Definitely not as associated with Disney, but certainly associated with storytelling because like Dre had mentioned earlier, even a lot of the stories that Disney reenacts um, are founded in stories that have been told for centuries, many of which you might even find in the Bible. Yeah, go ahead, Dre. Yeah, I'm not quite sure I'm grasping the concept or exactly what you're asking. Do you have an example to maybe help? Of coming out of the gray? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that, so from my understanding on what Lauren had said before her, uh, I mean, just eloquent uh, explanation explanation was uh, coming out of the gray is necessary to act. So there Mm -hmm. are issues like I know for yourself veganism or not like you can uh like as a person you have this choice of choosing veganism or not and like you it's uncertain which one uh because I mean in in this world we live in a world where there's gray and there's tons of uncertainty it is uncertain whether or not one is, I mean, better better for you or better for society, all these things. And yeah, like what one, one, and, and you need, and one needs to ultimately make a decision despite all this uncertainty, uh, which path of action to take. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I say like coming out of the gray, I was referring to kind of this process of evaluating the uncertainty and all this information. And then Cause what's it called when your behavior doesn't match your belief? There's a, we talk about that a lot. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Cognitive term? dissonance. Yeah. So I think the question really is like, how do you, like, at what point have you decided enough Like, have you come out of your cognitive dissonance and decided affirmatively, like, this is right or wrong, and then you choose to make an action? And I think, like, that process we're kind of referring to is, like, coming out of the gray, coming out of this dissonance space Uh, to decide and act. I'm not so. I think cognitive dissonance means something slightly different than how... uh, Well, cognitive dissonance is when you're experiencing like discontent because one of your actions doesn't match with a belief or a belief doesn't match with an action. Mm. Right. Yeah. 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 And like in that you would be navigating a gray area. Like, so in a navigation of gray space, you would maybe experience cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. So to reconcile that you have to choose black or white, and then you have to like take steps toward an action or, you ignore or something else. Right. Um, Yeah, I think that there are also decisions, though, that you don't necessarily have or one does not 
I don't think necessarily have cognitive dissonance. And so that's why I was like, mm. like, I mean, I think about like gun control because it doesn't really personally affect me or my, like, I, I don't, I mean, I, for all I know, I don't have like cognitive dissonance about that as a topic because it's just like something that I don't think about. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Anyways, I guess just like, how do you, how do you decide to act right? <laughs> to put it shortly. Yeah. Um, oof. I'm going to tell a little tale. <laughs> so in my early twenties, I began, I, I suppose you could call it like my own sort of hero's journey where I decided to embark on a journey to find truth. So sort of epic, I suppose it would be. And I did, I was looking for, as I started traveling around. Can the, I just, can I just, I'm going to completely interrupt you. I'm just imagining Dre with so his, his little backpack yeah. at the foot of a mountain, just looking up. Yeah. <laughs> and truth is at He's the top. Like... Ready, ready to conquer all obstacles and monstrosities in my way. I'm mm -hmm. um, ready for all the archetypes. And I, before this journey where I began traveling to major cities around the country and then around the world, I definitely saw the world more black and white. And I definitely was, I definitely subscribed to many of these archetypes. And I saw to, to our, our point here, it was much easier for me to act in the world, to take stances, to move aggressively in the pursuit of my goals when I saw things and people as these archetypes and as these clear concrete things that I could navigate pretty well. And then there became perhaps a cognitive dissonance, perhaps a fog or a gray that began to sort of seep into my life. And then I decided I need to find out what's real, what's true in this world and in my life, because right now being this kid from the east side of St. Paul, who hasn't spent that much time out of Minnesota and is really just victim to all these biases and my environment that I had no control over that's constantly influencing me. I know now that this is not everybody's reality and that there's so many things I'm missing because of who I am and where I am. So I need to embark. And I started looking around the world for constants and consistency. What, what sort of, political system is correct what sort of economic system has been tried and true throughout all walks of all different countries and cultures uh what laws do everybody agree on are there wars that everybody can agree are, are just are there things that like certain questions that can ask and get everybody to say yes this is the right way is there a a, a god that i can see permeating through all, all cultures and peoples and in this journey, I, I definitely came out with less of a black and white world. And a lot of the archetypes, a lot of the things that I saw is true. A lot of the things that motivated me and comforted me in my pursuit began to sort of crumble. And there are some things that have helped me work through this over the past now, five years, six, seven years. But 
kind of to your point in the opposite way, it's just like, yeah, I, the gray area, the lack of seeing things as archetypes, seeing things as black and white has definitely stifled many of my pursuits. Um, I've definitely had, have had bouts of nihilism where I'm just like humans, you know, we came out of nothing. We'll go back to nothing. No, like there's not one truth. Like there's cultural relativism, blah, 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 blah. And that left me in that I am in general in kind of a state of gray in that way, in my own way. Not to say that that's exactly what you guys are saying, but that's what it invokes in me in this moment. I appreciate the diversity of thought on this cast and on this topic specifically, because I think it just highlights how much, I mean, a topic like Disney can bring out of all of us. And I think that's a huge piece of what common science is supposed to do. So, I mean, even in this journey that you talked about, um, I think it relates a lot to the way that we embark in these conversations. And you're right, like we will get through a whole hour cast all having done hours of research and we might still land smack dab in the gray. <laughs> like, and we might have more questions than answers, but I think that is, I mean, that is just the beauty of like life and of practicing common science. And I think and hope that for you now having been engaged in this for some time and all of us and we've talked about this before too but i think that a consistency for me is this not this podcast or this youtube channel but the idea of coming to the table with your ideas and talking through and refining mm -hmm. and asking questions because like the gray area might always be gray but you can always keep asking questions in the gray area to navigate like the next turn or the next moment or the next step. So I just appreciate the story. Right. Yeah. I appreciate the story and the moral of the story to me is that, <laughs> is that, yeah, I mean, we are, my question was a little bunk because we are never out, out of, of the, the gray. gray. <laughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> we live in a gray world we live in a gray world we got to come up with a better like neutral i don't know just yeah not a fan of living in a gray world but we uh, live in a sparkly world yeah. with rainbows and colors <laughs> and like differences i like that way better in terms of like disney and this i mean yeah idea and i want to talk a little bit more about disney specifically too but yeah, just to explain the sparkles and rainbows, because like everything we see might be a prism, like you might look into, if you've looked into those, um, like optical spyglass things, right? Like it's beautiful, but it's complicated. And it's, I mean, geometric, and it's just confusing, and it might evoke thought. Uh, but that's maybe a better, a better uh, analogy than than gray like yeah you've got to navigate the sparkles of life yeah because gray also implies that there's no structure too uh and that it's like all uniform this one thing uh yeah i mean like you said there there is there's definitely uncertainty but there is definitely structure uh, underlying it and, and structure underlying the prism and how the, the light refracts and, uh, 
creates uh, maybe a Pink Floyd cover. Uh, but yeah, I think that, yeah, I mean, it's just this dance. And I think, I mean, that's mm-hmm. also coming back to, like you said, this, this podcast and these conversations, uh, the idea of science is just, yeah, I mean, powerful at navigating both the uncertainty and the structure mm-hmm. to finding more truth, mm-hmm. whatever that means. Sorry, you you waited very patiently, Lauren. I just got excited because <laughs> I remembered, like, speaking of sparkles and thinking of cute things. Um, I think we talked about this in the past, but cute aggression and Disney and cuteness. I'm curious if either of you guys are familiar with cute aggression or experience it. So we actually recorded a Disney cast before Common Scientists and we uh, curated our cast because uh, yeah our first 10 or so episodes were not up to uh, our standard of today and uh, I was not familiar with cute aggression until the first time we recorded a Disney episode. Uh, Now that we're recording it a second time I, I am familiar with the concept of cute aggression i definitely experience it with our two cats um and i try to i mean i'm yeah i definitely need to uh make sure i don't smudge them too hard but they're they're darn cute yeah so i can't take credit for it either joe is the one who taught us but do you want to explain a little bit about cute aggression for our listeners yeah, cute aggression is on the most basic level, just where something is so adorable, it's hacking into all of our kind of baby loving sensors that you just can't help yourself. And you get kind of overwhelmed. The the- one of the theories is that you're getting so overwhelmed with this influx of emotions and desire that it manifests itself in a sort of aggression. A lot of times it's a it's a really ver- verbal aggression where you can be like, I just want to like we all heard, like I could just eat you up, right? I yeah. just, I could just, I just want to punt you. I just want to punch you. Like I could just rip your head off. I could just squeeze you to death. It's all these things that we're saying it in this really sweet way, this really loving way, but the words are actually really violent. <laughs> yeah. And there's, you know, it, it, it depends. I mean, I don't experience this, so maybe you guys can speak this to this. But depending on where it is on the spectrum, I suppose it, the feeling is, can range on violence like how violent it is like how do i really want to do it do i just kind of want to do it obviously you don't do it so you don't truly truly want to do it but can you speak to that like how strong is that feeling i'm not quite sure oh my gosh so bad (laughs) (laughs) so bad so i was not aware of this term also until dre brought it up the first time and then became aware of it but i've experienced it my whole entire life and specifically since um since adding cats into the family, uh, <laughs> it's bad. So for me, it manifests in clenching my jaw and um, is so bad that after about seven months when I went into, or about after about six months of having cats, it also corresponded with my dental visit. I think this is like, we haven't talked about this before, but when I went into my dental visit, I had been clenching my jaw so hard that the fillings that I got um, in the cavities in my mouth just six months prior 
were coming out because the pressure wow. that I put on my jaw in cat and like cavity filling should last, I think like three to six, three to five years or something like that. Do your, do your common science research. But in six months, like this substance that's stronger than your teeth was coming out like crazy. And then she, the dentist that I worked with, she could also show me like, here are the pressure areas. Here are the areas where like, you can see that your the muscles in your jaw um, have been like overly stressed. And I had to like, very conscientiously start putting the cats outside of my room while I worked. I still have to when I'm petting them, if I notice myself clenching my jaw, I have to look up at the ceiling because you can't clench your jaw when you're looking up at the ceiling. And it also caused chronic headaches where I was taking up to 2000 milligrams of Tylenol every day or every other day. So like cutigushin for me was super real and it was super problematic. Clinical yeah. cute aggression. Like Clinical <laughs> Wow. So bad. Yeah. If you're a psychologist and you're listening, feel free to DM me. Maybe there's some other like inner thing that I should be taking. Like I don't know, it's calm, but or they could study you. Yeah, you can study me if you want to. I'll be your case your case wow. study. But yeah, just like no control. I mean it, it has been a journey. It is still hard. I still get headaches sometimes. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And I just don't have, like, I, it, it's unconscious. I do not have power over it until now I notice it. And then I can be like, crap. But I usually notice it after I start doing it. And, like, I can't hold our cats for that long because of it either. Because I just, like, I do, like, hold them and then I want to smudge them. And I think if I didn't clench my jaw, I might actually injure my cat. And so then I set it down. <laughs> Maybe I should never have kids. I don't know. That Wow. But it's, yeah, I don't know. If anyone else out there hears this, like, and you experience this too, I'll feel like less of an idiot if you could just drop a couple, like, me too, or like, maybe you're a little on the nuts side, but I kind of get it. <laughs> <laughs> I would feel really good about that. <laughs> but yeah super real for me man you know what is so to to change the topic from cute aggression uh but to keep on the disney train one thing that i think cute aggression is, is on the disney train and and to keep on the disney okay. train <laughs> not not remove the butt uh so there's this book called The Last Lecture, and it's by this computer scientist who, like, get who gets diagnosed with terminal cancer, I believe, and he gives a last lecture, and in it he describes uh, how, I mean, just like how he achieved his dreams in in his lifetime. One of his dreams was to be a Disney Imagineer. And I just, I think that's the coolest job title out there. Dre, would you be a Disney Imagineer? The simple answer is yes. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I just, 
common scientists, if you're thinking about college or career plans, maybe maybe add Imagineer to your your uh, wish list of career paths because I didn't know it was a thing until I read this book, and it sounded so cool. He was helping design some of the theme park stuff and. Oh um, wow! Oh yeah, yeah. So speaking of theme parks um, mm-hmm. and Disney, in prep for this cast, my two articles that I um, found in peer-reviewed uh, open access journals, one of one was about major lawsuits that have happened uh, all over associated with Disney theme parks and discrimination. Um, against children with disabilities. I was not aware that it was an issue, but I guess many families have come together to sue Disney um, on like an, an unequitable experience for their children at the theme parks. So just mm-hmm. kind of a random tidbit. Not at all what I was anticipating when I did Disney research. But the other article that I read was exactly what I was anticipating when I did the Disney research about how Disney was like the foundation of like American stories coming out of the 1950s and helped shape and and recall war experiences and blah, 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 icon. So those are my two my two tidbits that seemed to not quite flow into the conversation. But now that you brought up theme parks, there's a lawsuit out there. So if you guys want to learn more about the lawsuit against Disney parks, you can find it on in, in an open access journal. The <laughs> University of Minnesota Libraries. Fun fact. Wow, that is a fun fact. Yeah. Uh, on that note, should we uh, start wrapping up this cast? <laughs> <laughs> uh man yeah we've been all over the place we covered archetypes we we covered all sorts of stuff and i'll hand it off to lauren because she does much better justice at at ending these casts (laughs) well common scientists thank you so much for tuning in this week we were excited to talk about disney to bring a little sparkle little little uh, rainbow into your life and um Hopefully you don't leave this cast feeling gray. Hopefully you leave this cast feeling excited about the complexity and sparkle of life. Hey, Common Scientists. Hope you enjoyed the cast. Thanks for investing in Common Science. We hope it brought as much value to you as it did to us. To learn more, smash the subscribe button and visit our website, commonscientists.com, where you can read our blog, join our email newsletter, and follow us on social media. Finally, if you like what we have to say, you can absolutely support us on Patreon. We can always use more support. You can navigate there also from our website, commonscientists.com, common scientists with an S, so that we can continue cultivating a community of common scientists.